Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's exciting webinar. I'm Tim Stark and the host of today's exciting event. I'm a professor of civil engineering at the University of Illinois and the technical director of the Fabricated Geomembrane Institute. This is our first webinar of 2022, and the remaining 14 for 2022 have mostly been scheduled already with great speakers and timely topics, which will be available on the FGI website. And the next webinar is shown on the last slide today. During today's webinar, we welcome questions and comments, which can be typed into the questions box in the control panel. You may send in your questions at any time during the presentation, and our speakers will address them at the end of today's presentation or in a follow-up podcast. The recording of this webinar and a PDF of slides will be made available on the FGI website after today's presentation. PDH certificates will be sent automatically to all who attend the entire webinar. Today's speakers are me and my good friend, Dr. Robert H. Swan, Jr. I'm really proud of Robert. He completed his PhD over the winter break. So really great to have Dr. Swan with us today. Rob is a leading expert on geosynthetic interface testing and helped draft the initial ASTM test method for geosynthetic interface testing. Uh, after completing his master's degree at Drexel University with Bob Kerner, he started the geosynthetics lab for geosynthetic consultants in Atlanta and has been at the forefront of geosynthetic interface testing ever since. So, Rob, thanks so much for joining us for this webinar today. Thank you for the introduction, Dr. Today's title is Behavior of Texture Geomembranes, Texture Geomembrane slash Nonwoven Geotextile Interfaces. And I'd like to introduce one of my PhD students, Jala Lin, who's done a great job on this research and characterizing the behavior of texture geomembrane geotextile interfaces. So, Jala, thanks. Hi. Here we go. There's the outline for today. First up is design interface strengths. So, this goes back to our analysis of a number of landfill slope failures, starting with Kettleman Hills back in the 90s, and developing recommendations for interface strengths that should be used for the design of slopes. Uh, the failure surface in Kettleman Hills was a combination of the secondary clay geomembrane interface on the base and the primary geomembrane slash secondary geotextile interface on the side slopes. This is a picture of the secondary geomembrane on the base. You can see the striations across the geomembrane showing that was the location of the slope movement. And there's the side slope, the geotextile uh, pulling off on the geomembrane interface. <clears throat> so this led to some testing we did. It's in Stark and Popel, 1994. Here are the three interfaces we thought that might be critical, geotextile, geomembrane, clay geomembrane, geonet geomembrane. At this time, it is a smooth geomembrane, smooth HDPE geomembrane. And so I want to go back to this and illustrate the development of the peak combination strength envelope and the residual combination strength envelope for design purposes. So here are the peak envelopes, and the question is, in the stability analysis, which one of these, or which combination, do I use to model the peak interface strength? So you follow the weakest interface from zero normal stress, so that is the geonet geomembrane, or you can see the geotextile geomembranes pretty close, but we'll use the lowest, which is geonet geomembrane, up to a normal stress of about 260 kilopascals or about 6,000 pounds per square foot. And then after that point at normal stress is higher, you can see the clay geomembrane becomes the critical interface, which is the smooth geomembrane I showed you just a minute ago. So for your design, if you wanted to use the peak interface strength envelope along a portion of the failure surface, you would use this combination starting from zero up to this point here and then almost horizontal out to the higher normal stresses. It's that peak combination strength envelope that determines the residual strength envelope. You don't use the lowest 
residual strength envelope. So there's the transition point. So let's go to the residual strength envelopes. Here they are for the same three interfaces. So notice the clay geomembrane interface is actually higher here at low normal stresses and gets close to being the lowest and the lowest out here at the highest normal stress. So we don't use the geotextile geomembrane interface envelope as the lowest. We follow the peak combination strength envelope. So remember the peak combination strength envelope utilize the geonet up to a normal stress of about 260 kPa or 6,000 pounds per square foot, and then followed the clay geomembrane interface to higher normal stresses. So the corresponding residual or large displacement combination failure envelope is the green to 260 or so, and then the blue. So you do not use the lowest or the pink envelope. And that's really important, especially if you have a GCL, so you don't have to use the residual strength or lowest strength of the GCL for your design. So the two envelopes you would use for your slope stability analysis are shown here, the peak, green to blue, and then the surfaces that you would apply the residual interface strength to, you would apply the same green to blue. And notice again, it's not the lowest interface strength envelope. So with that, let's go back to Kettleman Hills and look at a cross section down the valley. So this is the facility before waste was placed in it. You can see it's a bowl shape. We conducted stability analyses, 3D stability analyses, uh, for this failure and notice that using residual on every interface gave us about 0.95. A peak on the base residual on the uh, side slope gave us about one. Peak everywhere gave us 1.26 and residual everywhere and this is pre-failure geometry, gave us 0.7, so that's too low. The first number, 0.95, is the post-failure geometry, so that really doesn't count. So this led us to the design recommendation that you need to apply the peak interface strength on the flat portions or base and residual on the side slope. <clears throat> and these are the two recommendations in Stark and Popel, residual interface strength on side slope, peak interface strength on the bottom, and a design factor of safety of 1.5 or greater. We also recommended a second check that even if you mobilize residual on the base and the side slope, you still had a factor of safety greater than one. And this is a residual strength, not a large displacement strength. If you use a large displacement strength, you'll need to meet a factor of safety of about 1.1 or higher. Stark and Choi followed that up with cover systems. And with the cover system, you can use the peak interface strength for the cover because the shear stresses and shear displacements along the cover system are much smaller than in a bottom liner system. So in a cover system, you could use the peak interface strength and a design factor of safety greater than 1.5. So what have I been talking about on peak on the base and residual on the side slope? So here's the cross section, 2D cross section for Kettleman Hills. This is the base. So here's the side slope. The base starts here and goes out the toe. So the peak strength would be applied to these vertical slices in the stability analysis here along the base. And on the side slope, these would be assigned the residual interface strength because it's their base is along the side slope. And both strength envelopes are stress dependent, as you see here and saw in the prior test results. So you would use a stress dependent envelope for both the base and the side slope. Okay, so what effect does this have on the factor of safety? So here, here's the Kettleman Hills analysis redone, and I'm going to show it with ring shear peak 
and residual and direct shear peak and large displacement. Now keep in mind this is for a smooth geomembrane, not a textured geomembrane, which we'll talk about in just a minute. But if you use peak everywhere, side slope base about 1.15 ring shear, residual everywhere, uh, sorry, peak on the base, residual on the side slope about 1.0, which is an excellent agreement with the failure. And then if we used residual everywhere, we're too low, we're about a 0.7, as you saw previously with the 3D analysis. This is a 2D analysis, of course. So you're still too low, and so this 2D analysis reinforces the design recommendations I just went through. But what has brought this to issue for the webinar today is most people are conducting direct shear tests for measuring geosynthetic interface strengths instead of a ring shear device or extending the direct shear device tests out to a residual value. So I want to illustrate the, the less conservative results you're getting by using a large displacement strength. So what do I mean by this? This is some large scale direct shear tests from the secondary clay geomembrane interface at Kettleman Hills. And so you can notice these shear stress displacement curves are still dropping at all three normal stresses. So these have not reached the residual strength. They're at approximately one inch of displacement. Now direct shear boxes can go more than one inch, some up to three inches, but you're still not reaching residual strength. So what effect does that have on the factor of safety? <clears throat> So if I use the ring shear peak and residual, notice I get right about a factor of safety of one. Peak on the base here, residual on the side slope. If I use direct shear on the smooth geomembrane interface and the peak is along the base and large displacement along the side slope, notice I'm about 5% higher. And that 5% is small because it's still a smooth geomembrane. If this was redone with a textured sheet, which I'm gonna talk about in just a minute, that difference in factor of safety is 20 to 25%. So if you use a direct shear device and a large displacement strength and do not extend it to residual, you're overestimating the factor of safety by 20 to 25%. So you are not at the same level of safety as we set up in the Stark and Popple design procedure in 1994. And that's really the focus of this presentation. So what does that mean for design moving forward? If we take a cross section that looks like this, for example, and you follow Stark and Popple's recommendations, the peak would be applied along this base here because it's flat. The waste is acting pretty much straight down on this. And so there should hopefully is less displacement, shear displacement occurring here. You also might apply the peak along this small little bench right here. But in this example, I've assigned it a residual because it is such a small bench and you're not going to get much resistance out of it anyways. So if you were looking at designing this slope and conducting a stability analysis, I would recommend residual along this side slope, peak along this base, residual, residual, and residual up to the top. And that's residual, not large displacement. So if you use large displacement and a textured geomembrane here, you would be 20 to 25% overestimating the factor of safety compared to the design recommendation in Stark and Popel. The second design recommendation is you apply residual everywhere. So you would apply residual along this horizontal base and make sure that factor of safety is greater than one if it's truly residual. If you use large displacement, then you should make sure that factor of safety is greater than about 1.2. So you're at the same level of safety. Okay. So let's talk quickly about ring shear versus direct shear and get into non-woven geotextile geomembrane interfaces. 
Here's some of the methods that are used for interphase testing. I'm going to focus in on direct shear and torsional ring shear today. The ASTM test methods are 5321 and 6243 for the direct shear box. The ring shear device does not have a ASTM standard test method. <coughs> Here's the direct shear box. <coughs> you push the um, bottom box past the top box and you shear the top past the bottom. Here's a picture of our shear box. We bought it from SGI and Rob Swan. <coughs> Here's a close up of the FGI shear box. <coughs> Here's the specimen size, one foot by one foot. This box can, at SGI can go three inches. And so this is a completed test. And if you look over here, the top box and geosynthetics have moved three inches. Here's the gap right here. <clears throat> so the critical plane or critical failure surface in this multi-interface test is this geomembrane and the bottom of this drainage composite right here. And that's the gap. So that's, that's the three inches of displacement. There's a couple problems, sorry, Rob, about this device. Sorry, Rob. First, you're shearing new material over the three inches. So you're not shearing the same interface. So you'll see that gives a different large displacement strength than what you'll see with ring shear because in ring shear, we shear the same interface continuously. There's no new material introduced. Second, you'll see that with the shear box, there are corners here. And this air bladder system, sorry, Rob, is has difficulties getting the normal stress into these corners. So at the center here, there's a pretty good distribution or transfer of the normal stress to the interface. But in the corners, if, if the interface is at a normal stress of 3,000 pounds per square foot, you're something less than 3,000 in the corners. And, and that gives us a lower peak strength in the direct shear box than you'll see in the ring shear device. Conversely, because you're shearing new material out to three inches in the shear box, you're gonna see a higher large displacement strength with the direct shear box than you do with the, the ring shear device. <clears throat> okay, so here's a look inside the direct shear device. Here's the air bladder system and a plate that, that's below it to transfer to normal stress. And so the ring shear peak is higher than direct shear because we're not getting the normal stresses in the corner. And the ring shear large displacement is lower than direct shear because we're shearing the same interface. Okay, here's the torsional ring shear device, which we've modified to accommodate geosynthetic testing. The normal stress is derived by weights hanging off this hanger system. This uh, bath rotates continuously, and the top platen, which is sitting down here, is on the top and it's fixed at the top with a force couple, and that gives us the shear resistance, as you see here. So this can rotate an infinite amount of displacement and that allows us to get all the way out to the residual strength. Here are some specimens, a drainage composite at the top with some texturing removed. Here's a textured geomembrane with a non-woven geotextile, and you can see some of the fibers where my cursor is pulled out of the textile uh, as shearing occurred over top of the texturing. <clears throat> so comparing the large direct shear to ring shear, large displacement and ring uh, residual strength is this graph. And you can see there's about a five to eight degree difference, depending on the normal stress, between the large displacement out of direct shear and the residual strength, true residual strength out of ring shear. Here's uh, some pictures of the ring shear device after shearing, and this is a smooth geomembrane. So notice you don't see many fibers pulled out of the, if any, out of the textile. 
because it just slides across the top of the smooth geomembrane. But here is a textured sheet on the left, and here's the corresponding uh, nonwoven geotextile. Notice you can see the fibers of the nonwoven geotextile are oriented almost in a circle, pretty much across the specimen. And that's because it's rotating in a circle across the texturing. The texturing's pulling out the fibers, orienting them parallel to the direction of shear. Okay, so let's take a little closer look at ring shear versus direct shear. So here is a comparison, same interface of a drainage composite and a textured sheet. The red line is direct shear and the blue line is ring shear. So at the lowest normal stress, notice direct shear giving lower than the ring shear right here. Now, if I go to three inches or 75 millimeters right here, they're, they're almost close, but notice the ring shear is a little lower and you're gonna see there'll be a difference as we get higher in normal stress. Now, you keep that test going out to residual, say a thousand millimeters, and there's the true residual strength. So let's go to 96 or double the normal stress. Here, the large displacement at three inches, the direct shear is much higher than the ring shear. Notice again, the direct shear is lower at peak than the ring shear. Uh, I think, and Rob's going to weigh in it, on in on it, I'm sure, in just a minute, about whether the normal stress is really getting transferred to the corners, and thus we're at a really an overall norm, lower normal stress. Whereas at three inches in the direct shear box, you're shearing new material, and that's generating a higher large displacement strength than in the ring shear device. We extend this out to the residual value at 96 kPa. <clears throat> okay, so notice also the ring shear decreases faster for this drainage composite textured geomembrane interface. Um, so let's go up in normal stress again, double it. Here's 192. Notice the large displacement's higher. The direct, direct shear peak is lower. And then finally, the highest normal stress, 285. Large displacement significantly higher from direct shear and direct shear peak lower than ring shear. Now that's uh, kind of the bad news. The good news is, is if you follow Stark and Popel, you're only using the peak strength on the flat portions of the landfill at all. And for the second case, or the second design scenario, you're using residual, so peak doesn't really enter into it. So, okay, so here are the resulting envelopes. Here's Ring shear peak is the blue. Uh, large displacement from ring shear is the next blue, and the ring shear residual is the final blue. The direct shear peak is the first dashed red, and the direct shear large displacement is the next uh, dashed red. So notice there's a 45% drop from the direct shear large displacement to the ring shear residual. And this is why if you use large displacement and follow the Stark and Popel design recommendation, you're overestimating that factor of safety significantly. We, we used prior failures to show it's a residual strength being mobilized on the side slopes, not a large displacement. How would the landfill know to stop the shear displacement at three inches because the direct shear box stops at three inches? That makes no sense. It goes until it reaches its constant minimum on the side slope. And I hope there'll be questions about that because the side slope does not know your shear box only goes three inches or one inch if that's your shear box. Okay, so 45%. Uh, okay. Uh, and I mentioned why we think the difference between peak and large displacement. Okay, so. If you have direct shear data, how do you extend it out to the residual to use it in your slope stability analysis? We looked at a number of ways to extend the large displacement direct shear, which is this red line, which stops at three inches, out to say a thousand millimeters to get to residual. 
We use the power function, the rational function, polynomials of different degrees and so on. Um, and you can see uh, a lot of these are just not workable. But we, we did use a power function and I'm going to illustrate that as well as some other methods for extending the direct shear results to residual. <clears throat> so here we go. Here's the power function, uh, and the power function is a constant times the shear displacement to an exponent b, as in boy. So here it is for a low normal stress and a medium normal stress. So we extend the three inch measurement in the direct shear box out to a thousand. And this looks like a promising way to extend it if you don't like using a French curve, which I'm going to illustrate in just a minute or a semi-log piece of paper, which I'm going to illustrate in a minute. Okay, so let me show you how it works. You extrapolate the power function starting at 40 millimeters, so 10, 20, 30, 40, so about right here. And what you're really doing is sort of extending this piece of the curve out to residual. If you start at the peak, you get some very wide range of residual strength so so try to get closer out to the end of the direct shear test and start the extrapolation from uh, nearer the end of the shear box whether it's three inches two inches or one inch so for this particular fit the a coefficient is 116.2 the b exponent is uh, minus 0.2 so the a coefficient is a function of normal stress. So you're going to see this A coefficient is going to vary depending on what normal stress. And, and you'll see on the next slide that you'll get some recommendations on that. So A is not going to be constant for your shear tests. You're going to have a different A at lower normal stress, usually higher at lower normal stresses, usually lower at higher, higher normal stresses. B stays about constant. Uh, so you'll see about minus 0.2 in just a minute. So there's there's where we start the extrapolation, about 40. So here we go. Here's lowest normal stress, A, uh, 40K, 8KPA. A is 30, B is about 0.17, and there's the fit. Double the normal stress, A doubles because the normal stress doubles, about. <clears throat> B is about minus 0.16. We go up the double the normal stress again, A about doubles. <coughs> B stays about 0.2. We double the normal stress again. A is about constant with the prior, so it reaches sort of a plateau. <coughs> and B is way different. That's because this direct shear test is very different than the ring shear test. The peak's different, and notice the large displacement ended up extremely high. So we had a little problem with this last or fourth direct shear test. So better to look at the first three, but I want to show you the actual data. Yeah, question mark. <clears throat> so here are the resulting envelopes. Um, there's the peak, large displacement, and residual for ring, and the uh, peak direct shear large displacement. Okay. All right, so the resulting extended curves are shown here using the power function and the A and B coefficients that I just showed you. <clears throat> so they're extended out to 1,000. You would take these points here at 1,000, and that those four points as a function of normal stress would plot your residual envelope that you would use in your slope stability analysis. And then follow uh, Stark and Popel, peak on the base, residual on the side slope, and then residual everywhere and a factor of safety of one. If you extend it, you only have to get above a factor of safety of one. Okay, so I know I'm dating myself by putting a picture of a French curve up here. But you can still buy French curves from Amazon.com. You get this whole drafting set for $8. Okay. So for the 
the listeners that aren't familiar with the French curve, you line this portion of this funny shaped instruments on the curve, and then you extend the curve. So you would put it here and you can extend out the curve to a thousand. I still like using the French curve because I think the person using the data knows more about the shear behavior of the interface than a power function. So you can use the power function, use an A and B, but also put a French curve on it, see if it makes sense. Uh, so I still do that. And um, I showed you the semi-log plot, which is right here. You can also plot this on semi-log, and that also helps accentuate the uh, latter parts of the curve and, and make sure they're flat out here as well. So three ways to extend the direct shear results, power function, semi-log plot, and the old French curve. <clears throat> okay, so let me turn to the behavior. Uh, geotextile texture geomembrane interface. So in 1996, we had a wrote a paper and we said the strength loss is a function of the smoothing of the texturing and the combing of the geotextile fibers. We published this paper in 96. Here's a picture of the non-woven geotextile fibers all interwound and bound together. And then after shearing to residual, you can see these fibers are oriented parallel to the direction of shear, just like the photograph I showed you that showed the fibers pretty much in a circular pattern. So we wanted to investigate what effect or what contribution the smoothing of the texturing has versus the combing of the fibers. Because in 1996, we didn't put a quantification of that in the paper. We just noted that as the mechanism. So here we go. This is texture geomembrane, uh, non-woven geotextile. And the three different curves are three different conditions of textile and geomembrane. So the black is new membrane, new textile. The red is new membrane, old textile after um, reaching large displacement, and then old geomembrane, and then a new textile put on top. <clears throat> 75 millimeters is right there. So there's one. So one, new textile, new membrane gives us the highest. Next, lowest gives us a new geomembrane and old geotextile. So that captures back not half, but maybe 40% of, of the unsheared peak. And then the lowest is the old geomembrane with a new non-woven geotextile. So the comparison of these three curves indicates that the texturing, the smoothing of the texturing is more important than the combing of the fibers. <clears throat> and we're gonna put some numbers on that in just a minute. However, at the large displacement and residual, it really doesn't, doesn't matter. We're, we're about the same with a new geomembrane or a new geotextile put on the interface after three inches of shearing. You can see it's pretty close here. And of course, when we get out to residual, it's, it's about the same. So here's that same plot at the four different normal stresses I, I talked about uh, a minute ago, 48, 96, 192, and 285. It's basically the same behavior at the, the different interfaces. Let me pick on uh, 96. So here's new, new is black. Red is new geomembrane, so it comes back um, maybe 40% of new, new. Blue with old geomembrane, new textile does not reach up and meet the new geomembrane. So again, it looks like the smoothing is having a bigger effect than the combing. Again, uh, at large displacement, it, it doesn't matter whether you replace the geomembrane or the geotextile, you end up at about the same place. And of course, at residual, you end up at the same place. <clears throat> so here's the comparison of the envelopes. So new textured geomembrane and a new geotextile. So we drop from 
24.3 to 13.4 at the large displacement. And we that's a 47% drop. And then we drop another 18% from the large displacement to the residual. So the total displacement for a textile texture geomembrane interface gives a strength loss of about 66%. Okay, so now let's do old textured geomembrane and with a new geotextile uh, applied after large displacement. So here's the peak. So instead of 24.3, we're at 13.3. There's the new new at the top. And then the old, oops, the old geomembrane, new geotextile gets a part of the way back to 13.3, only about 10.6. And then the residual uh, old geomembrane, new geotextile is only at about 9.6. <clears throat> okay, so now this is uh, new textured geomembrane and old geotextile. So, there we go, new geomembrane and now old geotextile. So new and new would be 24.315. So even adding a new geomembrane, we still don't get back to 24.3. So the combing of the fibers in the geotextile is still important. It's, it's dropping it uh, at least five, about five degrees. Okay. Here are the peak strengths. Uh, new and new up here at 24.3, new and old geotextile, 18.5, old geomembrane and new geotextile. And here is the large displacement strengths. It really doesn't matter that much. It's about one to three degrees difference, whether it's a new geomembrane or a new geotextile placed back on the interface they're within about one to three degrees at large displacement. At residual, they're all the same. Okay, and so for the non-woven geotextile texture geomembrane interface, we think the strength loss due to the texture polishing is about 70% of the loss and the fibers being combed in the direction of shear is about 30%, okay? And here's some photographs to illustrate that. Here's the combing of the fibers in the circular direction, and the top of this geotech geomembrane's been smoothed a little bit. Here's some scanning electron microscope photos of both of those to illustrate it. Here's the texturing on the left Prior to shear, notice the angularity and roughness of the texturing across this surface here. Here's the same geomembrane after shearing. Now look at these ridges are smoothed off a little bit. There's still some bumping and texturing here, but much smoother than you see on the left. Here's another picture of the, the geomembrane at a, at a 45 degree angle. You can see a lot of waviness and um, discontinuity or, or roughness of the geomembrane before shear here. But notice after shear, that's kind of gone. It's kind of smoothed out. Uh, you don't see that waviness uh, in a scanning electron microscope. So let's look at the geotextile. Here's the geotextile before shear. Again, you can see the fibers all interconnected, wound up together. After shear in a ring shear device, you've oriented them parallel to the direction of shear, as you see here. And so we think that's accounting for about 30%. Okay, finally, uh, let me turn to the drainage composite. If, if you understood the textile and geomembrane behavior, the drainage composite texture geomembrane is very similar. And then I'm gonna turn it over to Dr. Swan. So here is ring shear geomembrane drainage composite. New, new is the black. New geomembrane, old geotextile after reaching a large displacement of three inches is red. And blue is old geomembrane and new geo, drainage composite, sorry, at, after three inches of displacement. So again, same trend. The drainage composite actually gets closer back to the original point 
than the textile. And I think that's because the GeoNet is embedding or engaging with the texturing because this is the highest normal stress, 285, as you see here. It's engaging with the texturing, whereas with just the non-woven geotextile, you didn't have the net structure to engage the texturing. The old geomembrane and new drainage composite, you've smoothed off the geomembrane. So even though you have a new fabric on top of the drainage composite, it's, it's not capturing back the uh, roughness of the texturing. So the peaks are different. The large displacements now uh, for the new geomembrane, old drainage composite and new drainage composites about the same, but notice we don't recapture or get back to the same large displacement when we use the old geomembrane or smooth geomembrane and drainage composite. However, uh, when you get out to residual, both one and two are about the same. Still, this old geomembrane is a little bit lower because the texturing uh, was removed initially. So here it is for the four normal stresses, low 96, 192, 285. I focused on 285 just a minute ago, which is this graph here. Um, but you can see a similar pattern for the lowest normal stress right here. The strength envelopes are here. So about the same 24, actually about 24.5 for the peak new new. So there's about a 57% drop from peak to large displacement and another 11.5%, so a total drop with the drainage composite about 68.3%, whereas with the geotextile it was about 66%, so a little bit more decrease with the, with the drainage composite. Okay, so let me quickly run through the envelopes for the different conditions. Uh, peak old geomembrane and new drainage composite, old geomembrane at large displacement, old geomembrane at residual, and with the new drainage composite. That compares to the 24.5. That's right. So this prior slide was a little off. It said 24.3. So compare that to 24.5. So you can see a much uh, significant drop. Okay, so now this is new geomembrane, textured geomembrane, old drainage composite. So now we're at 21.7 instead of 24.5 at the peak, so it doesn't come back. The large displacement's now only about 11, and the residual about 4. Okay, peak strength envelopes for these three different conditions, new composite, new membrane, new membrane, old composite, old membrane, new composite. So you can see with a new geomembrane and the old drainage composite, we get somewhat back or close to the peak, but not, not all the way. And if we use the old geomembrane and even a new drainage composite after large displacement, we're still significantly lower. So this leads to our quantification, uh, and this is large displacement about the same, residual the same. This leads to our quantification for drainage composite that 75% of the strength loss with a drainage composite is due to texturing being polished. 25% of the strength loss that you see is due to fiber combing. So both contributing significantly, polishing uh, having a little uh, more effect about uh, three quarters of the effect with a drainage composite. Okay, so why is this important? So if you're going to try to take geomembrane samples after a failure or after slope movement, the texturing will change as well as the fibers in the geosynthetic geotextiles and drainage composite. So you can't go out and take the samples in the from the bottom liner system because the texturing is going to change, you cannot use that to predict pre-failure interface strengths. The fibers are going to get combed in the direction of shear, as you see here, 
and the drainage composite itself may be damaged due to shear movement. So you can't use that as well because the net may not be structured or give the same interaction it did prior to failure, such as you see here with nets in uh, a damaged state. So cannot exhume drainage composite or geotech or geomembrane after a failure of a bottom liner system. So again, in 1996, we, we said combing fibers and smoothing of geomembrane texturing. This recent research shows that about 70 to 75% of that's due to the texturing being smooth and the rest to combing fibers. Most importantly, this strength loss is significant. You saw in the results I just showed, it goes from about 65% to 70% strength loss from peak to residual. So it's important to make sure that these textured geomembrane interfaces do not experience shear displacement because there's going to be a lot of strength loss. In 1996, we, we simply stated that you would, should expect at least a 50% reduction, and now it looks like it's going to be more than that. <clears throat> so here's uh, some examples. This is the drainage composite with a smooth text, uh, smooth geomembrane, so not much damage to the drainage composite. Oh, I thought I put in some other ones. Um, so I, we have other photographs of the drainage composite having the fibers pulled out of it or the textured as well. Okay, so let me wrap up. So textured geomembrane, geotextile and drainage composite interfaces, very important. Um, this is really where, or one of the strongest interfaces we put into a bottom liner system. But the geotextile and drainage composite interface could experience strength losses of 70 to 75% due to texture smoothing, 25 to 30% due to combing of fibers of the geotextile and or the drainage composite. After bottom liner system movement, texturing, and fibers vary, so you need to obtain geomembrane, geotextile, and drainage composite, and other geosynthetics outside the movement area if you want to predict what the pre-failure strengths were. For cover systems, exhumed samples may be, capital, may be, okay, because of the lower normal stress and less detrimental shear displacements we see in a cover system. However, if the area has undergone substantial movement, you've still combed the fibers out of the geotextile or the drainage composite, so you should expect a lower strength out of it. Okay, so I'd like to turn to my distinguished co-presenter, Dr. Robert Swan, who's going to talk about ways to increase the strength of these interfaces at large displacement and residual. So Rob, thanks for joining us. All right, thank you, Dr. Stark. I'm uh, recovering from the uh, little bit of being beat up. I have to adjust my glasses, I got a black eye, and uh, my stomach hurts a little, but it's okay. Um, reminds me of the discussions <laughs> we had in the mid-90s uh, mid about uh, ring shear and direct shear. So it's all it's all good. I did want to make a couple of quick points before I get in. Um, within the ASTM test standards, there is guidance for the laboratories to confirm they're getting their stresses to the corners of the box. And so we use uh, load cells in those corners. And if you have to, you uh, adjust the amount of air pressure that you're putting in your air bladder to make sure the stress is getting everywhere. Um, so I don't want you guys thinking that we're haphazardly applying normal stress on the big boxes. Um, also, real quick, uh, I suspect the difference that we're seeing in the peak from the direct shear um, versus a ring shear may be related to the fact that the ring shear, you're moving a relatively small specimen instantaneously as opposed to moving a large, um, uh, wider width specimen. So there could be a little bit difference there in the mobilization to peak. But anyway, uh, that's always a conversation. So uh, excellent conversation that 
Dr. Stark presented, very interesting. I have um, my concerns about pushing out over a thousand millimeters, but I fully understand the analysis and makes a lot of sense using his methods. So how can we fix this? How can we improve this? This is the conversation that uh, I want to talk about very quickly. Uh, I'm presenting work done by my very good friend and former work colleague, Dr. Zihang Yuan from SGI Testing Services. He was unavailable to present these topics. But what you see in front of you is, um, well, I first would say, um, Tim was talking about individual interfaces. So what you're seeing in front of you is actually a multi-layer interface test, um, meaning there's more than one geosynthetic involved in two soils. So from top down, um, we had a um, protective cover soil that was nominally compacted, overlying a, a double-sided geocomposite, overlying um, a structured, textured type geomembrane. One side, the top side had longer spikes, the lower side had shorter spikes. And that overlaid a hydraulic, a hydro, um, not a hydraulic, hydrated GCL, which was a double-sided non-woven product. And then underneath that whole system was a subgrade compacted to relative compaction, 92% um, at optimum. So what we're seeing here is in fact, uh, a number of large displacement strengths. We're going out to about three inches or so. And we're seeing that uh, the failure envelope is as we're as shown. But what's interesting is this failure envelope is showing failure between the geocomposite and the top side of the structured geomembrane. And therefore, that is the weak plane that Dr. Stark was talking about with his uh, composite interface plots that he was doing. And so therefore, this was the large displacement strength. So what's happening? Uh, can you advance the slide? So um, in a uniform height texture type geomembrane, um, we basically are seeing the rolling over of the, of the points as we saw in the uh, um, scanning electron microscope images just recently. So the points are rolling over and we're seeing combing in uh, the geotextile or geocomposite. Um, very similar performance because of the non-woven nature of, of the geotextile. And so um, this is what this plot is showing. We're just showing a theoretical curve. Uh, next slide. Yep. So um, what Dr. Ewan had come up with theoretically, and unfortunately has been taken into uh, production through some uh, piloting and now uh, moving into formal production, was he did some numerical work and suggested what if we had a two-tier system, one that had primary high um, texturing or spikes, however you want to refer to it, and then a secondary set of spikes. And the idea is that as the primaries are shearing and rolling over, the Fibers are being combed, but now they're going to engage into the second tier. And therefore, we could increase the large displacement strength, which would also increase the residual strength. And so what we're seeing in um, the graphic, uh, in the graph below, is that um, the dotted line, the black line, is the, um, G, uh, in this case, we're looking at GCL, uh, geocomposite against the longer primary spike, and then we're seeing going into residual. Uh, and that's happening at UPL for the peak. And then when we get over to U2 in terms of the displacement, we see now that that do composites engaging the secondary spike. And we're seeing it go up to a peak and then go into residual. So what uh, the red line is indicating is that we're actually theoretically able to raise the residual or large displacement strength. 
So if we go to the next slide. Yep. <clears throat> So here, here's the, the concept. Phase one, shear up to the shear displacement U2, apply, uh, an applied normal and shear load are all carried by the long points. The shear point and the short points are shielded, basically protected by the long points and do not carry any load initially. Then we get into a second phase of shear displacement from U2 to UR, again, referencing the figure before, where physically the long points are now bent sufficiently and the geocomposite is now in contact with the shorter points. And therefore, the normal and shear loads are progressively transferred to the shorter points and uh, displacements are increased. Uh, we'll go to the next slide. So um, these are some um, examples of an older structured um, type geomembrane on the right and a prototype of the dual structured um, uh, geomembrane that's patent pending. And so it, it is a little bit difficult to see, but there are staggered and you can see the primary and the secondary points. And so if we go to, I think the last slide, um, we can now see a comparison between the older um, structured geomembrane versus this prototype sheet with the dual, with the dual spikes. And you can see clearly there is an improvement in peak strength, but we see also an improvement in large displacement strength. So this is new technology. Um, it's been proven theoretically and um, is now uh, being proven via um, laboratory testing in the product. It, it will be launched uh, shortly. I think that's all I have. Okay, great. Hey, everybody, uh, there's just a load of questions. They're all excellent. Um, so Rob and I will record a podcast to answer all these questions. And this hope this week, Rob, or, or early next week, so we can get answers to all these questions. But let me answer is some quick ones here. All laboratory testing done at room temperature, 70 degrees. The texturing in the geomembranes that I tested are nitrogen textured blown film geomembranes. Um, let me see if there's another couple of quick ones. Um, why would combing the geotextile indicates alignment of the geotextile with movement versus movement due to smoothing? Um, well, because we see the fibers, they, they're actually oriented um, in the direction of shear. So they're being pulled out uh, from the tangled mess in the beginning and, and oriented parallel to the direction of shear. Um, some, someone asked the difference between large displacement and residual again. Um, so large displacement, so let, let's just use what's on the screen right now. Rob's got test data out here to about three inches, okay? So if I, sorry, Rob. Um, so if I take the pink line, you can see it's still kind of decreasing even at three inches. There's a little flat part here and then it's going back up. Um, whereas, so that would be a large displacement strength. The shear box, wherever it stops, whether it's one inch here, two inches here, or three inches here, different boxes go different directions, different distances. That's the large displacement strength. And so the lab should clarify how far the box is going. Whereas a residual, we don't care about how far it's gone. We only care that this shear stress displacement curve is constant. It's reached its constant minimum. So the, the amount of smoothing and the amount of combing has reached its maximum extent. Okay, I only have one minute left, so let me introduce the next uh, webinar. Again, everybody, uh, great set of questions. Uh, Rob, let, let's get this podcast recorded uh, next day or so, so we can answer all these questions. Um, here's uh, Dr. Swan's contact information, if you'd like to send him questions directly or me directly. Our next webinar is Introduction Design to Design of Mechanically Stabilized Earth MSE Walls by Professor Richard Bathurst of um, the Royal Military College in Kingston, Ontario. It is Tuesday, February 8th, 2022 
at noon central time. Uh, it will be a hands-on design approach to MSE walls, whereas his first presentation was more of an overview of the systems. Please visit the FGI website. On the website are all the prior webinars under the resources menu on the top bar across the website. Every webinar offered is there with the PDF of the slides and associated technical papers. Specifications, guidelines, and other information is on the website. So everybody, thank you so much for joining us January 2021. Best wishes for 2022. And thanks for attending.